0: Welcome to the Outdoor Feast by Modern Carnivore. If you're new to hunting, fishing, or foraging, we welcome you to the conversation. Get ready for stories and insights that start in the Northeast, but range to the South, Far West, and wide open spaces in between. Now, here's your host, Todd Waldron.
1: Okay, welcome back to the Outdoor Feast podcast. Thanks for joining us. I am excited this week to be having a conversation with wildlife biologist, researcher, and author, Jonathan Slatt from the Minneapolis area. John recently wrote a book called Owls of the Eastern Ice, and it's getting crazy good reception out there. It's uh, New York Times nature book of the year. Uh, John has been interviewed on uh, a lot of different places across the world, in UK, on BBC, and across the United States. And he is sharing his story about fish owl conservation in the Russian Far East, and relative to this community he's also sharing some great perspective about his observations with some of the people that he met the hunting culture there wild food people eating salmon and moose cutlets and deer and the whole conservation around that and how that ties back into conservation here or wherever you are so it's a really cool conversation i'm thrilled to have john on the podcast before we get into the episode, uh Mark is here with me today, Mark Norquist,
0: and uh just want to say, Hey Mark, how you been? Hey Todd, doing well. Doing well. I, I'm really excited to hear this uh this podcast with John. You know, it's just you've told me about him for a while and I haven't read the book yet. I just ordered it, but it, it just sounds like a really interesting discussion.
1: It's a great discussion. I'm thankful he was willing to do it. And just so many of the things that the community is about, Mark, in terms of conservation and food and hunting and landscapes. And, you know, one of the things that struck me, uh, along with his great conservation storytelling, he's, he's this kind of unique person where he's a scientist, but he's also an incredible storyteller. And sometimes those two aren't aligned so well, uh, but he's an incredible communicator. He's funny. Uh, His storytelling is really compelling, and he shares why he's doing the fish owl conservation, what life was like in some of these remote Far East Russian villages, like the hunting culture around that. It's really cool, and uh, it's going to be a fun conversation to share. Before we do though, uh, you've been up to so many great things lately, and I'd love to hear a little bit uh, about what you've been up to. You've, you've got hard water hunters coming out. We've just come through hunting season. You released an episode with Giannis Patelis, uh, from meat eater recently about spearing so many cool things. So love to hear a little bit more about that. What have you been up to?
0: Yeah, it's, it's been a busy fall and, uh, the last few weeks have been pretty crazy. Uh, fortunately I did get my deer opening day. So that was good. Uh, and you got an amazing buck with your dad, which was really exciting to see. I'm so happy for you guys. How how old is your dad? My dad is 76
1: and thank you by the way. I, yeah, it was a great season and we've spent so much time outdoors this year and covered so many miles and that was a great shared experience that just goes right to the heart of, you know, some of the deepest reasons why I hunt, you know, with my family, with my dad, somebody I've been hunting with my whole life. So to be able to share that with him and to just, you know, experience that with him and just, uh, through the process of being in the woods with him when it happened to sharing the meat, um, it just, it made my season. It just, uh, regardless of how everything else went, it is one of the best seasons I've had in a long time.
0: I bet that's, that's all you need right there is, is that experience. And uh yeah, so it's, it's, it's been a, it's been a a, a different kind of fall with, with COVID here. I've gotten out a fair amount, not as much as I would have liked to have uh, when it comes to birds, you know, been doing a little bit of duck hunting, uh, a little bit of uh, upland hunting, and then, and then deer, and then in between, like you said, a lot of different things going on. It's been fun. Uh, Meat Eater just released the episode of their Fur Hat Ice Tour, uh, where I took Giannis Patelis uh, spearfishing, and there's a link on, on modcarn.com over to that video. Uh, that was a lot of fun. We recorded it last winter. Uh, Giannis came to town along with a uh, friend, Miles, uh, who's a producer of the show and, and others. And, and we had a we had a great time up north. And, and I think it's something that people like to see if they've never gone dark house spearfishing before. It's a it's a unique it's a unique activity and obviously not something you can do everywhere. Uh, and I think even if you don't have cold weather where you're at, you'd find it, uh, it really interesting. So that got released um, a few weeks ago, did an event with Andrew Zimmern, the famous chef, author, TV personality, a lot of roles he, uh, he plays, but um, did a, a corporate event uh, called Wild Food with Andrew Zimmern. Uh, presented by Modern Carnivore, so I just sat down with with Andrew in his kitchen, and we talked about wild game. The one thing that maybe not everybody knows is he's a very avid hunter, and so we talked about what hunting means to him, why he loves cooking w- with wild game, and then we actually did a recipe. We prepared a a pheasant confit taco recipe. Everything was from scratch, including the tortillas. Had a lot of fun. Uh, unfortunately it's not something that's out there that people can see because it was a, it was a private event, but, uh, we had a lot of fun with that. Uh, Andrew's actually, he is going to come on the, the modern carnivore podcast in December. So we'll have a discussion and people will be able to hear that. So, uh, stay tuned for that. And then, like you said, we're going to be kicking off the hard water hunters series, uh, soon. Uh, we've already done a couple po- uh, posts, John Kachorik who is, uh, a passionate, uh, dark house spear, uh, has been, uh, doing interviews the last year with different people within the community. Um, a lot of cool stuff around the craft that is spearfishing. You know, one of the things I mentioned to Giannis in the episode, you'll see is, um, I talk about how, you know, really this is a, an activity, an outdoor activity that grew up as sort of the poor man's sport. And so there's not a lot of mm-hmm. industry around it. And that's what I like. You know, homemade spears, uh, homemade decoys, uh, things like that. And and just little little shanties that you can have out in the ice. So we'll be putting a lot of focus on that going after this winter. We're going to be chasing whitefish and uh, northern pike. And so uh, stay tuned for that, too. We got a lot yeah. going on.
1: <laughs> a lot going on many cool things going on folks so if you've been out hunting and you haven't had a chance to check out all of the modern carnivore social posts just go back and check that stuff out with Giannis patelis of the meat eater uh, what a cool opportunity to hang out with andrew zimmer that's amazing can't wait to hear that podcast quick question when does spearing season really kick in here we're in early december is that something that's like around the holidays or like early january or when does that typically start
0: yeah, you know, it depends on the year. Uh, my hope was that we would be on the ice here middle of December with some early thin ice that, uh, that we test to make sure it's safe. Uh, but it's, it's not looking good right now with the, the long range forecast over the next couple of weeks. It's, it's not that cold. And so. You know, optimistically, I'm looking at us getting out here around Christmas time um, is is the general thought right now. John and I were just looking at it last week, looking at the weather forecast. We're going to be doing a few trips up north. And so um, so that's probably when we'll be, you know, kicking into high gear on this with early ice. And then early January is when it really sets in. You know if you look at at that episode of Meat Eater, i I took those guys out. I think it was literally new Year's day uh that we were that we were out on the ice and and so it varies year to year depending upon the weather but uh that's we're looking around christmas time to to get on the ice.
1: sounds so cool, Mark one of these days I'm gonna get out there and and try that uh and I can't wait for that opportunity so good luck, keep us posted. And um, I'm going to be looking forward to following that. So let's get into this podcast with Jonathan Slatt, author of Owls of the Eastern Ice, researcher, wildlife biologist with the Wildlife Conservation Society. Check out Owls of the Eastern Ice. Put it on your reading list. Uh, It's a great gift for loved ones coming into the holidays. I think you're really going to enjoy the book. And I hope you really enjoy the, the podcast episode. So thanks for listening. All right, everyone, this is Todd. Welcome to the podcast. We're rolling here and I'm going to say that one of the best books that I've read in 2020 is Owls of the Eastern Ice by Jonathan Slatt. John is a biologist, he's a writer, he's based in the Twin Cities area in Minneapolis in Minnesota and we're going to be talking about Owls of the Eastern Ice here on the podcast today. John, how are you today? I'm good Todd, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. It's an honor too. So you released this book earlier this summer, I think, and you've been on the National Book Award long list, which is amazing. Uh, You've been on BBC. You've been interviewed, uh, mentioned in New York Times. We can introduce your book, Owls of the Eastern Ice, and, and the impetus for writing it and all of your work. There was actually an article recently in The Guardian, I think it was August 2nd, 2020, and it was titled, Why I Spent My Life Saving the fish owl, the Blackson's fish owl. Um, tell us a little bit about that for the audience.
2: Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's funny, first of all, as I give talks about the book and and talk to people like you about it, I keep coming up with, uh, different reasons, you know, why I got into this work. And so I, I really think there, there isn't just one reason. It's a bunch of different things that kind of coalesced around the owl. But I think that, uh, the easiest answer as to why I really got into this and uh, this this work, specifically with this weird, elusive owl that lives in Russia, really was because I could. And there there weren't many other people who could. Um, You know, I uh, approached this project already with a decade uh, of experience um, living and working in the Russian Far East, which is a pretty remote place uh, where if you don't have knowledge of the language and of the culture, you're not going to get very far and it's understanding that uh this was a bird that needed a voice um it's as i said before it's very elusive uh they're hard to uh hard to observe they don't like people they tend to you know flush at 100 150 yards away they'll just fly off if they if they can sense that a humans approaching and so these were birds that were being kind of put in the way of uh natural resource extraction and there was no one was giving them a voice to kind of give them, give the species a seat at the table to talk about you know, management that would benefit us, you know, humans who need some of the resources that, that the owls rely on, but then also give them space um, on this planet as well.
1: Yeah. It's like you were entering uncharted waters there to some extent with your research. And one thing I loved about working through the book was just some of the innovation that you and your partners uh, work through in, in the field work, you know, in the research and figuring out about these fish owls and how they live and where they live and what their habitat is. And then just like how to start um, tracking them and finding them and, and mm-hmm. all of that stuff was really cool. We're going to be talking a lot about that. And, and we're also, you know, another thing that for the audience here that I think was really great, for your book, um, a couple of things. One is that your characterization of, of the people you met there was really, really good. It was funny. It was smart. Um, I really loved it. We're going to be talking about some, maybe your perspectives on a few characters here in a minute. Um, Mm -hmm. also just the idea of the place, you know, this, this really wild place and whether you're in Minnesota or whether you're in the, the Adirondacks or whether you're in the Russian far East, you know, there was this kind of underlying theme in your book about the communities and the the people and how they connect to land and how they connect to their food and all that stuff. That was um, really quite amazing. How would you describe the area that you were in? Like, I I know I'm not going to pronounce this right, but spelled like the Seacoat Allen Mountains, or how how would you pronounce that? And what was that landscape like?
2: Yeah, so it's the Céziate Aline Mountains, and it's honestly it's it's fairly similar to uh, uh, to the Appalachians uh, for people familiar with with that mountain range in the eastern U.S. It's these sort of low rolling hills where you know, maybe the maximum elevation. Is maybe six thousand feet, but most most of the hills are much lower, uh, maybe fifteen hundred feet. So it's just you know um, low rolling and very dense. There's a lot of them, so they're very forested. There's a lot of conifers at the slightly higher elevations and uh, deciduous forest at the lower elevations and in the river valleys. And it's, I mean, it's 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 pretty wild. And the human population density of this region is is very low. Um, the, the the county that uh, most of the book takes place in, uh, Ternay County, it's the northernmost. County in the province. I believe it's 1.2 people per square kilometer there. Wow! So very, yeah. very low. And, and there's eight to ten villages of. You know, some villages have really just a, a couple dozen people in them, and some have a, have a few thousand. But it's it's not many people and a, and a lot of forest.
1: Sounds like an amazing place. And and so when you start the book out, you were you were starting the book out in a village in an outpost. I think is it pronounced Agzu or how how did you pronounce Perhaps, that? Yeah. So, so what was that like? You start out the book that starts the narrative and you're in this remote settlement and you're getting started with your story. And what was that place like? Were there people like in terms of um, how people were relating to the land and hunting and and angling, was that a hunting and angling community or describe that?
2: Yeah. So uh, Ogzu is one of the more remote places I've, I've I've ever been to Uh, when I went there in, in 2006, I had to fly in by helicopters. There were no, there, there's a road that leads there now, but there wasn't in 2006. And really, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a village of maybe 150 people and everyone there is essentially a hunter. I mean, that's just kind of what, you know, there's no, there aren't any of these linkages to infrastructure that, that, that makes it easy for, for people to get other things. So everyone relies on what, what they can do themselves. And in fact, uh, this, the village had largely been supported uh, in the Soviet Union, which you know collapsed in ninety one. Uh, supported by the state, there was a, a game meat industry. So everyone would go out, hunt and trap, and then helicopters would come in uh, and take the stuff away, and then and pay the hunters for that um, uh, for those products.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. And when you say take that away, was it going regionally to larger population centers like in that area, or was it actually going? farther away
2: that's a great question that I don't know the answer to I mean, it wouldn't surprise yep. me if some of the, if some of the furs there's you know quite a number of fur bearing uh, mammals uh, that, that live in those forests it wouldn't mm-hmm. surprise me if those things were going you know all the way to Moscow but mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know for sure yep yep you know they could be
1: uh, it's a really interesting setting remote location there's a game meat industry there and let's talk about a couple of the characters in your book if you don't mind and we'll, we'll work through that and some of the food that you were eating and some of the, like the hunting traditions of people that you met, if you don't mind. And then we'll, we'll get into fish owl conservation too. Victor Chepilev, yep. one of your chapters in your book, you know, you're, you're leaving Aksu and, uh, you, you meet this hunter, this character. Uh, what was that like? What was he like? How would you describe him and like what he was doing, um, in terms of like you, just your perspective of him as a, as a person and as a hunter?
2: Yeah, well, you know, I people are born into villages like Agzu, and that's kind of, they grow up knowing nothing else. But Chapalov is one of these guys that came from outside. And they're always, for me, the most interesting. You know, it's people who seek out uh, these remarkably remote places. And he's, yeah, so Chapalov, Victor Chapalov was uh, just a hunter. Um, and he was a, somehow got a gig as a, um, Almost like a a watchman for a uh, for this hunting base f- for uh, a, g- a guy who has a sausage industry essentially um, in in the in the Russian far east so this is a place where this uh the sausage magnate um, as i called him would 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 fly in with his own helicopter spend some time hunting out of this out of this base and then you know uh, leave he'd only come a couple times a year but Champolev was there year round he was you know uh, building a cabin for this guy and doing some other things and he was just you know, just a very, very much an outdoorsman, like nothing more than being by himself in the woods.
1: I, I love it. Your story about him is great. And uh, the sauna story there is pretty cool. And, and just where he is on the river. You you had so many funny uh, interludes in that book, too. You know, we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, you know, a couple other individuals that I was really drawn to in your book, John, um, was like uh, Vova and Ala Volkov. And mm-hmm. like, there's a couple of things there. Like, I love the story where you had went and you were at their house and she was telling you about the one fish, like the mm-hmm. the large salmon, you know, making fish pelmeni. And what was that like? And you described eating deer cutlets at their house and talk a little bit about them if, if you wouldn't mind.
2: Yeah. So, uh, Vova, who's the, uh, the, the man in the family, he, he was one of these professional game hunters back in Soviet union. So he's uh, he doesn't do that anymore, um, but he has just this long tradition of hunting. You know, he, he has a hunting cabin that was his father's hunting cabin, and you know he spends as much time as he possibly can out, out in the woods. And he lives in Amgu, which is a a town of about 800 people, mostly loggers. And that's you know it's not nearly as remote as 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 Agzu, uh, but it's it's still pretty remote. And I mean, this was a town that I want to say in 2013 there was this huge storm which knocked out something like 15 bridges uh, leading to, to Amgu from, from Ternay, which is where, where I'm based when I'm there. And so for, it was something like two months that the, villi- that the villagers of Amgu had no access to outside anything. You know, you, you know, people couldn't drive in there with, with cheese or, or with any, any goods because the, you know, the, uh, the roads were blocked. And the people of Amgu didn't really seem to care uh you know they're so <laughs> used to being independent you know uh, if people needed food they'd you know they they'd go into the they'd go to the river or it was just uh, or they'd go to the into the ocean you know the sea of japan is, is right was right there or they'd go into the woods and and get what they needed and people have cows so they had milk they had cheese and so you know this is kind of vova's this is where vova comes from like this is what he's this is his reality and so every time we'd go there we were um constantly just re- regaled with these just piles and piles of food for every meal. Uh, they're just partially showing off what they have, but also just, it's just normal for, especially for Russians to be very, very generous with food. And, but just seeing the diversity of the food, uh, you know, there was, I remember one breakfast where there were, there were, uh, moose cutlets, there were, uh, king crab legs, uh, there, there was a uh, uh, red caviar. Um, you know, there's all these things that, that you know Volva just went out and got walking out of walking from walking out of his house it's, just, it's really a, a remarkable place it, it sounds like a remarkable place and it's like at the intersection of there
1: on the on the sea of japan on the ocean and then you've got these beautiful salmon rivers you've got the forest mm-hmm. and this 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 whole palette of different wild animals and habitats and wild food It sounds like a, a cool place one of the things that Allah was making was like fish pelmeni. I, yep, how would yep. you
2: describe that?
1: What what was that?
2: Uh, it's I mean, pelmeni are essentially dumplings. It's almost like a ravioli. So it's this, mm-hmm. it's a little bit of minced meat that's wrapped in dough and then boiled. Uh, and so yeah, Vova had caught this fish. Um, it's the largest of the salmonids, a um, a time in. And you know, I remember walking walking into the kitchen and <laughs> seeing such a huge pile of minced meat that like, I don't know, I don't know what they had caught or how many of them, but it, it was clearly a lot. And so I almost, when she's telling me it's just one fish, I had trouble. I, I just assumed that my Russian wasn't, I wasn't comprehending. Uh, but yeah, it was just the one, you know, they, um, and we ate that, you know, three grown men ate that one fish for like three days. That's crazy. <laughs> Breakfast, lunch and dinner. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, I love that part of the book where she's she's looking at you and she's saying one fish. <laughs> she shows you the yeah. big fish head. <laughs> <It's>
0: yeah. Like,
1: <laughs> oh, that's such a great story, John. Uh thanks for sharing that. And so there were other things about food. We're just talking about some of the foods that you saw and ate and like the wild food and the hunting traditions and everything. Um and it doesn't have to be just wild food, but you know another um, individual that was really a great character in your book was Anatoly, right? The Hermit. Uh And, you know, for so many reasons, like for his character, for his like eccentricities. And also I I love the story about what, what was he making? He was making something like blinch. I can't remember what the name of it was. Do you know what I'm
2: talking about? I do. Yeah. Bleed knee are like, are like, uh, they're sort of like crepes. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there was one morning where, you know, my, partner and I, Sergey, uh, we'd been trying to catch these, these owls and we were not having a good time. We were stressed out. It wasn't working. And Anatoly, I think because he'd been living in this abandoned hydroelectric station for about a decade, uh, he wasn't used to having guests. And one of the things he developed was one of the idiosyncrasies he developed was he would repeat the last word he said ad nauseum until something else came up. And so he had said the word blinchicky, and then we just you know, every like thirty seconds to minute like blinchicky, blinchiki. <laughs> and so you know we're sitting there already stressed out, and this guy just keeps saying, "Yeah, anyway, um, yeah." But he he made really good blinchicky. I'll, I'll give him that. <laughs> he had time to practice, right? <laughs> so <laughs> right, right. <laughs>
1: oh, you, you know, so uh, such a such a cool character, and uh, you know, one of my favorite, several things. Uh, you know, talking about characters in your book. Probably one of my favorite stories was um where you were talking about I can't remember if his name was Collier or Tolier he he had quit drinking because he mm-hmm. had went on a bender and wanted it to rain and and then um it started raining and he decided he needed to exercise <laughs> exercise restraint with his, with his mental powers and, you know, controlling the weather. Uh, like it's such a great story. and Like so many others. And what did you find endearing about, or, you know, just interesting about all the people from your perspective, you, you talk about so many of them in the book, like what were some things that really stood out for you with some of the people there?
2: Well, I mean, I, I think in, in, you know, generally speaking uh, it's difficult to, like when you just first meet a Russian, uh, they can be fairly closed off and fairly unemotional. And it's, and it's hard to get a sense of who they are. Uh, but spending long periods of time with, with, uh, with these people, mostly field researchers or you know, these random hunters or fishermen, you know, there are so many good people and uh, they've all got these weird backstories, but all able to kind of focus their attention and interest on, on the owls and, and their conservation and that was just, that was delightful for me. I mean, this is one guy, Andrei Katkov, who I had a lot of trouble working with in the field. He, he can just be a difficult personality, but I could always see past that because I knew that like he had the owl's best interest at heart and he just wanted to do a good job and, and help these birds. Really interesting. Uh, that's
1: that's great stuff. You know, this is kind <laughs> of a tangent, but just quickly, one I, I just read a book called um, Sportsman Sketches by Ivan Turgenev. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard of Ivan Turgenev or not, but he was a Russian writer back in like the 1800s. And so he he wrote this story, this collection of essays. Uh, It was about his perspective as being a bird hunter in Russia and all the people he met in like the 1850s. But the cool Mm -hmm. part of it was was that this book actually had an impetus for social reform in Russia in the 1860s with freeing the serfs so like mm-hmm. like 23 million people were emancipated and his his story about russian characters and the people it just reminded me when you were talking about russians and personalities and culture it reminded me of that book that I had just read about that and it's the same kind of cloth like he's writing about people you know and 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 that makes it even a richer story. It was really cool stuff.
2: Yeah. neat. I should, I should look that up. I've read other of his, of his stuff. I haven't read that. Yeah. It's, it's really neat. It's,
1: you know, for, for being a hunting book that can change, you know, the social fabric of Russia in the 1800s mm-hmm. is pretty cool stuff. Um, so let's talk a little bit then about your fish owl conservation here. So let's talk about fish owls and some of the research and, and what you overcame you know you're in uncharted waters, you talked about it you know in the beginning and saying you did this because you could and because there wasn't a lot of research and everything mm-hmm. and they're these fantastic, incredible birds. Um, talk a little bit about the fish owls themselves and then just like what it was like for you having to overcome all those
2: things to learn more about them through your research over the course of several years uh-huh yeah so I, I guess when I try to describe fish owls to, to people who haven't seen one or, or haven't, you know, have, have no idea what a fish owl is. These are just improbably large birds. I mean, they're, they're owls that are essentially the size of eagles. They, you know, they stand at two and a half feet tall. They have these six foot wingspans and they're really, really shaggy. So it's, it's almost, uh, it's they they're, they are in many ways very much unowl owl like, and in some cases un bird like they walk more than other owls do they you know they walk up and down river banks looking for a good spot to jump in on a fish you know they're aquatic prey specialists they're eating they go after uh, salmon trout uh, they take frogs in spring they go after lamprey and those are all you know decidedly uh un owl-like characteristics and uh so you know kind of the the basis of the the Ph my PhD project which is what the the book is about was really understanding that there are all these new roads uh, logging roads going into fish owl habitat but no idea how the owls are reacting to that and what parts of the forest the owls really need um, to, to lead happy owl lives and so we were going in largely blind um, no one had caught really an adult fish owl before uh, so capture capture techniques that was all um, that was all an unknown um, and i i will credit russian ingenuity or overcoming a lot of the the obstacles we faced, and I think again this has to do with you know think of somebody in in Amgu when your fifteen bridges get knocked out, you know either you adapt and figure out how to how you're going to live until the the, uh, the road is restored, or you're going to wither away. And you know the Russians adapt and they figure things out. So uh, a lot of it was trial and error. But um, when something didn't work, we tried something else and tried something else until eventually, you know, we had a, a successful project. It's it's really cool stuff. And so how many years were you in the field there? It was, I, I
1: don't recall off the top of my head, but it was several years that
2: you were spending in the field, just out there in these remote areas, right? Yep. It was So over a five-year period. I believe I was in the woods for 15 months and mostly in in winter. Um, it's, I, I'm still involved in this work now, but so the book took place 2006 to, to 2010, and I was in the woods most most winters. Yep. And
1: what did you find out about the fish owls maybe that surprised you? Like you're doing this research, um, you're talking, you're trying to figure out how they're adapting to changing habitat and forces on the landscape, like the roads and and the logging impacts. Were there any surprises for you personally along the way of like, just like uh, things
2: that you might not have expected? Well, I mean, just almost everything was a surprise. I mean, one of the Wonderful moments of this work was so you know we were what we were doing was putting uh, little GPS backpacks on these birds. We'd, we'd catch them, put these GPS backpacks on, and then recapture them a year later uh, to see where they went. So every time we, we recaptured one of these birds and you know, plugged in that little GPS and the you know the map lights up on my computer, so my laptop screen. It was it was like Christmas. It was it was amazing. <laughs> you know, seeing uh, where these birds were going, uh, how long they were there. Um, and then kept trying to deduce what, what it was that they were actually doing there. And I remember there was one bird where uh, uh, one of the first ones that we had a year-long data for, so in one or two GPS locations a day, and trying to figure out, like, what, why, why would he go up there in in uh, in autumn, or why would he come down to the river mouth? And we were able to trace that uh, to fish migrations. So there was one, uh, uh, one male who went down... Right to the mouth of the river, sitting on the edge of the Sea of Japan, right as the um, as the pink salmon were were migrating up. So he just could not wait for these big fish to show up, and was just like you know first in line, uh, waiting for the, the for the fish to come in. So cool, right? Following
1: the food, um, that's right. that's incredible. What did you learn about the habitat in terms of trying to come up with a conservation plan uh, that people can embrace in the landscape, in the communities, in the structure that's there in the Russian Far East, making it work on the ground. How did you piece that together? Uh, how does that work?
2: And so going in, I mean, there was definitely some concern uh, on, on my side that we would just be teeing up another, you know, Pacific Northwest controversy, you know, uh, spotted mm-hmm. owls and, and loggers, where you would either be team owl or you would be team logger, and there'd be no no middle ground that worked for everybody. And what we found was that there's plenty of middle ground here in Primoria, anyway, for for fish owls and and logging. You know, the fish owls absolutely 100% require the river valleys uh, to, to to nest in. Have these big trees, and also to um, to access the rivers, and that's where the loggers are putting all their roads. Um, so once we were able to identify what parts of the landscape were important for owls which is these areas with really big trees for them to nest in and then also rivers where there are multiple channels that's that's important for the owls Uh, we created a map identifying the best of those locations um, and then shared that with a logging company to then say look if you're going to be building a road up this valley avoid this spot this spot this spot this spot and Mm -hmm. essentially they said okay you know the valley's wide enough we don't have to put our road right through there we can put it over here so that's that's not a problem and there's also, there's not the, uh, the the big trees that the owls are nesting in are largely commercially worthless. These are, they're big, rotting Japanese poplars or Manchurian elms. And, you know, so it's not a sequoia with this, you know, you know it's not a $100,000 tree that, that a spotted owl is nesting in. It's this gross falling down thing that a fish owl is nesting in. And so you know, they don't have any financial reason to be targeting those trees anyway. So by pointing them out and saying, you know, leave those alone if you can, more often than not, they're saying, fine, we don't need those trees. Yep.
1: I I love what you're talking about with the middle ground and the collaboration and working together, because that's Mm -hmm. such a universal lesson for conservation, whether you're in the Russian Far East or whether you're here or any place in the world, really, That's, that's great stuff. And this is kind of a tangential question, but with the logging, were they exporting the wood or like, how do you get wood? Out of remote places like that, when transportation is so tough on the ground, were they barging the wood to other places or did did you ever get a sense for
2: what was going on there yeah, and I think you know I think that's that's one of the uh one of the ways that ties uh one of the things that ties this particular project to global well being i mean all the wood that's logged there goes right to the coast because the coast is right there, and then it goes other places. Some of it makes it as far as North America. You know, some of the wood from from Primorius forests are their they're floors here in North America or, or in Europe. And so, one of the benefits of uh, sustainable management of the forest roads mm-hmm. is you know, it's not just benefiting the Vishals; it's it's making sure that we have floors here that we have you know reasonably priced. Uh, resources to, to use here.
1: Yeah. When you think of it in those terms, it's like when you're thinking about sustainability and the fact that like thinking globally and acting locally, it's pretty crazy to think that, you know, wood from Primaria's forests are coming here to North America and that there's, you know, that there's products that we're consuming. It really reaffirms the whole connectedness of the global sustainability and global economy and its impacts on what's happening on the ground there in the woods, you know, for habitat.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and also, you know, so many of these, uh, of the, the people that live in these remote villages in, in Primoria, they're loggers. So if if the logging is unsustainable, they'll be out of work. And then what are they doing? You know, they're going in and they're poaching. They're doing all these other things that are even f- more detrimental. So mm-hmm. it's, I think it's really important to find a balance between, you know, sustainable use of these forests and, and wildlife management.
1: Yeah, for sure, for sure. And what what did you feel like the overall sense like when you're doing this research? How was it received locally? Like with some of the the communities, the people that you met, did they get what you were doing? You're talking about they're so connected to the land, they're loggers, um, they hunt, they they have a reliance on the food. What was their general perception of what you
2: were up to and why you were there? It, it was largely met with bafflement. You know, people understand to some degree, you know, game management, they understand if we were in there looking at deer numbers or tiger numbers or something, I think that would have made more sense. But uh, because the natural resources are so important to these people, I think species that don't really impact them directly don't necessarily register. And the Mm -hmm. fish owls are one of those, where it's this bird that sometimes people see them, but they're by the river at night. It's not, it's not a positive. It's not a negative. People don't like the elves. People don't dislike the elves. It's just this, this thing that's there. And so there there was a lot of mistrust and misunderstanding about what, what we were doing there and what, what our motives were. Uh, Some people, even to this day, people that we've, we've made these, uh, these local connections. And some of the people who have known us for 15 years, and I would consider friends don't fully by the fact that we're just there to research owls to make the world better for them. It's, they think there's some angle that we're playing. I, I made the mistake one time of <laughs> mentioning to someone that uh, one of the funders for this work was was the Columbus Zoo in Ohio. Like, a zoo? Okay, say no more, say no more. Because <laughs> they assumed we were catching them and they shipping them off to Ohio, you know, and, mm-hmm. and making money off of, off of the owls. It's really interesting.
1: Yeah. It's And, and you know, that's something I, I found with conservation, whether that's there or whether it's in other places too. It's like when you're doing conservation about maybe like that charismatic megafauna, like the tigers or the, the deer, yeah. the game animals, like they get it yeah. more, you know what uh-huh. I mean? And then when you're dealing with whether it's fish owls or whether you're dealing with hermit thrushes or Bicknell's thrushes, it's just a little bit different. Yep. You know, it's like they're, they're trying to get sense for what that's all about why you're doing it so that's really interesting and so you you work for the wildlife conservation society right is that right yep and so you you've been doing this fish out work for a long time and there's still things that probably need to be done but you're also working in the russian far east and in asia and so what other conservation work are you doing on the ground over there right now
2: well uh with with respect to that, that, that same habitat the um Official habitat. Uh, I'm, I'm involved in some some tiger work, some uh, anti poaching initiatives, and one of them actually came out of of the recommendations from from my PhD, uh, which was to you know look at this network of logging roads because you know, we went from there were fewer than 150 miles of road uh, in the mid 80s to today about 4,000 kilometers of road in, in that same space. So they're, they're selective logging when they go in. You know, so they'll put they'll put a road in leave and then come back 20 years later and harvest more. So the habitat is still there. It's 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 degraded to, to some degree, but you know it's not fully natural, but it's still pretty good forest. And so the trouble with that is that uh people then drive those roads and they spotlight at night, they poach, uh some some people go in and you know have a campfire and then it'll it'll burn out of control. And so what we've been doing is working with the main logging company there to identify which of these roads travel through high biodiversity areas. So uh, places that the, the logging company doesn't need to access now, they will in the future, but we can block access to those things now. Um, so we've been um, either by strategic, uh, taking out bridges strategically or putting up these giant berms, just you know, blocking access. And so mm-hmm. what that does, if you have somebody who's, who's out in a pickup truck, looking to spotlight for deer, and they drive up to the spot where they used to go there. And now there's a, you know, uh, there's a giant berm. They're not going to get out the shovels and start working at that berm to get in there. They'll just go somewhere else. So it's essentially creating these little de facto protected areas just by putting that berm there, and that's been uh, a, a very satisfying outcome of uh, of the owl work that benefits all the species that live there. You know, tigers, uh, wild boar, red deer. So that's specific to to, to Primoria. I'm also doing kind of. Range-wide migratory bird work, um, going from the the Russian Arctic down to um, the mud flats of Myanmar. Really fascinating. So, just going
1: back to what you were talking about with the berming—that's such a Mm. practical, (laughs) such a practical best management practice on so many levels. It it lowers poaching. It reduces the the needed maintenance. They don't have to, you know, if they can berm the road off, like it just eliminates unwanted traffic. And yep. you know, so that's like one of those classic win-win situations, um, and it's so simple. It's great that you know that you can have those positive results on the ground
2: with something yeah, like absolutely. that. Yeah, absolutely. There's a um, there's one group that I mentioned in the book that was that, that was doing this. You know, b- before we asked them to, they were berming the roads uh, because it's you know it's it was it was in the Amgu area again. This like, little village of 800 people and the guy who runs the logging company that essentially employs most of the able-bodied men there, he's from there. He was born there. He was raised there. He hunts there and he, he can see, you know, he, can, he can see what impact uh, these roads are having on the local wildlife. And so he was, he was berming his roads on his own um, just to uh, re- reduce some of the, uh, some of the hunting uh, pressures to, to some uh, yep. high biodiversity areas.
1: Yeah, that's really cool stuff. And you had mentioned, uh, I'm bouncing around a little bit here, but uh, I should have asked you this before, but um, Primoria, how would you, in relation to like trying to figure out how big this place is, like scale, in terms of like here in the U.S. and size of like states or regions or anything like that, John, how would you scale it for people
2: that aren't familiar with it? Yeah. Well, so uh, Primoria, it's the southernmost province in the Russian Far East. And the Russian Far East, is it's almost mind boggling. It's, it's an area that's twice the size of India with a population human population about the size of Manhattan. And so Primoria is just a tiny little bit um, on the south. It's about two thirds the size of Minnesota. So it's not very big and only about 1% of, of the size of Russia. Uh, but there's a tremendous amount of biodiversity packed into that in that little sliver of of the country. Um it's a temperate forest, so it's pretty similar. It's you know 45 degrees latitude. So pretty similar to to where I am now in Minneapolis as far, you know, there's there's, there's oak trees, there's maples. Uh but you have these um boreal species um dripping south uh from from the north and the subtropical species creeping up from the south mm-hmm. uh, and all intermingling in this in this temperate forest. So that you've that's why you have things like tigers, like subtropical species sharing forests with Eurasian lynx and wolves and and brown bears. So it's, it's a really remarkable place. Yeah. It sounds it. And like when you put it into that perspective, like the, the
1: richness, the biodiversity and such as like, it's right there, like an ecotone with so many different places coming together. That's amazing. It sounds like an incredible place. And what were you, you you had mentioned uh, before I got back on this, you were talking about your migratory bird work some of the stuff you're working on there. That's pretty interesting. Uh, what Any specific projects that you're working on right now and like what you're trying to learn about that?
2: Yeah, so a good example is working with just this one species uh, called the spoon-billed sandpiper, which is a critically endangered, weird little shorebird. And so this is a bird that breeds in the Russian Arctic and winters down in coastal mudflats of, of Myanmar and, and, and Bangladesh and uh, Thailand mm-hmm. a few other places. And so as a global... Conservation organization, you know WCS, the Wildlife Conservation Society. We have offices in most of the countries where this spoonbill sandpiper uh, lives at, at different times of the year, either during breeding in Russia or migration in, in China or or wintering in Southeast Asia. And so, what I realized was that uh, we, uh, different country programs for WCS were doing conservation that that was focused on these birds, but the, but the country programs weren't talking to each other. So what I'm trying to do is get the programs to talk to each other and uh, create, instead of this sort of di- di- disparate uh, conservation action, unify it all into one thing, which makes it uh, ma- uh, makes it much more impactful. Yep. A re- uh, easy a, qu- a quick example was the, the our program in Bangladesh uh, was uh, helping create a marine prot- protected area. And all the people at WCS in Bangladesh, they're looking at the water. They're looking at the dolphins. They're looking at the whales. They're not pay, paying attention to the coast. And I realized by looking at the, at the map of where this protected area was going in, it's potentially good uh, Spoonbill Sandpiper habitat. So we uh, hired a Spoonbill Sandpiper expert to do some surveys, found some, and has developed conservation recommendations for the for the coast along this marine protected area, which is just, uh, you know, again, win-win for everybody and something that would not have been included in the uh, uh, management plan for the protected area had we not thought to turn their attention to Spoonbill Sandpipers.
1: Yeah, that's great stuff.
2: That, that is a win-win for everybody. Uh, I love it.
1: And is there anything that you want to amplify that I haven't asked you about the book or any call to actions? Um, you know, what? what I find, there's this great theme here, the the conservation work that you're doing is amazing. And then like the, the, the backstory behind the people and this landscape and their connections to wild food is amazing. And then when you think of it in terms of the fact that there's wood coming from primorius forest to North America, it really mm-hmm. ties in the impact of like why we should care, you know, and, and how we're all connected. But are there anything, is there anything else you want to like share John or like, or amplify or any calls to action um, just for people for your book or for conservation things that you care about and you're working on?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I would just add that if, you know, if, if your listeners have conservation projects that they're passionate about, I mean, consider donating to them. I mean, this is a terrible year for, for fundraising you know uh, a lot of the uh, organizations that fund the fish owl work are are I've already said that they're not going to fund this year because they, they they don't have any revenue coming in so they don't have anything extra to give and with and with the fishails it's it's me and Sergey like we're uh Sergey Sormech you know it's the two of us essentially writing proposals and getting out doing the field work hiring field assistants and it's uh it's difficult to do on our own it's difficult to raise money for so, you know, fish owls or whatever, you know, if there's, if there's something that you want to support and want to see still alive in the future, this is, this is a great time to, to give some money there.
1: Yeah, it sure is. And the conservation funding, like you're saying, it's like, if there's a year where it's important to give, if you're in a situation to be able to give, this is the year uh, because there's so many conservation organizations that have struggled with funding, you know, coming through uh, 2020. So I I love that advice. That's great. And people can find your book just about everywhere. Owls of the Eastern ice. This is a great book, folks. It's funny. It's well-written. One of the things I, I like so much about you, John, is like, you're a scientist, but you're a great, great storyteller too. (laughs) So I, (laughs) I enjoyed that book. I started on a Friday night and I couldn't put the thing down. I read it, over a weekend, I think. And so yeah. if, yeah, so for people out there, if you haven't read Owls of the Eastern Ice, you got, if you like the outdoors, if, you, if you're interested in conservation, just go find it, pick it up, get a copy, and uh, you'll be glad you did. Um, any, any thoughts on where people can find you, John? When, when are you heading back to Russia in the Far East? Are you got any travel plans coming Ooh. up for-
2: No, I mean, everything's on hold because of of COVID. So we'll hopefully, you know, I want to get back as soon as I can. Um, I do have, I I have a website, jonathanslat.com that lists a couple upcoming events. That's fantastic. So
1: we'll we'll make sure to put show notes in uh, for that stuff. That's great. You know, how I actually came across your book was my friend, a couple of friends, Katie and Ashley from Minnesota, um, they're bird oh, yeah. conservationists and yeah. they had been sharing some of your Twitter stuff and I know them through conservation and and that's how this whole thing started. So, well, listen, Jonathan Slat, I appreciate you being on the podcast. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for talking about, um, uh, everything that you're doing, the important work for fish owls and, uh, I wish you all the best and I really appreciate your time today.
2: Yeah. Thanks Todd. This was fun. Thanks
0: for listening to the Outdoor Feast podcast. You can check out our other podcast and more at modcarn.com.